And now, ladies and gentlemen, check it out. You've got to start somewhere. The podcast that takes you behind the scenes of show business to prove there's no such thing as an overnight success. With your host, Rachel Corbett. Welcome to the show. Today, my guest is somebody that you would know very, very well. He is one of Australia's most loved comedians. You would have seen him on the telly, heard him on the radio. He is my ex-radio husband and also a guy I simultaneously love and find incredibly annoying. Mary Quartz. Hi, Rachie. How are you? (laughs) Thank you for joining me. I know I'm not going to get through an entire episode without being annoyed by you. Is it awkward being in a room just alone? with me it's very weird we are currently broadcasting live from the a current affair meeting room mm. if anybody at channel nine, at channel nine mm. if anybody comes into the room i'm just gonna say we're working on a dodgy builders story guys yeah yep. we've got a mechanic that we've had an eye on and we reckon he's been shortchanging people bread wars bang. just yeah just <laughs> workshop price of milk guys <laughs> talking about the price of milk <laughs> yeah. Mizzy, thank you for joining me it's great to podcast. be here Rach. it's a joy to be talking into a microphone with you again. What's it about? <laughs> What's the podcast? The about? show is called You've Got to Start Somewhere. So it's yeah. all about the early days of your career, the shitty gigs, the stuff that um, that old mate who used to host uh, This Is Your Life. Oh, yeah, Mike Munro. Mike Munro. All the stuff that he wouldn't include in mm-hmm. your This Is Your Life mm-hmm. book. I want to go right back to the very beginning of where everything started. When you were a My kid. My mum's Vijay. <laughs> Right, I've met your mum. I don't want don't to. Go, then, why would you take it back there? I don't, I'm not. She's probably listening now, going, "Why are we talking about I know. my front?" Parts? I know. I'm so. 1973. It was a balmy day in November, and I was born. Right. You were born when you were little. Mm. What did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be a soldier. Did you? Enough. Yeah, more than anything. I wanted to join the army. So is that because now, and we'll talk about this a little later, but one of your great obsessions is anything to do with, you know, combat. You know, Mm. you read a lot about war history history Mm. and all that kind of stuff. So that's, I always wondered where that started for you, but that Mm. started from when you were little. Yeah, I wanted to, when I was a kid, I was one of those kids, I was always dressing up in army gear, always playing army with my mates. And I lived on a, uh, in the outer suburbs of Melbourne uh, in Eltham, which is, you know, pretty, at that stage, particularly very, very leafy area. And there's lots of, you know, areas to go. You could just run wild. So me and all my mates, we all like to play army as young boys do. I don't know if they do now, but we used to play army and that was just a thing that we grew up with. But there is a bit of weekend warrior in me. There is the guy who would like to be a soldier, but clearly <laughs> wouldn't pass the psych test um, or the physical examination. But it was. I think it probably stems from my dad telling me about my grandfather and my family's war history as well. So that was... that. I think I just grew up with... You know, hearing stuff about my grandfather, particularly, he was in the navy, the army, and the air force. Oh wow! And he was in both world wars. Oh wow! So he was fourteen in nineteen. He was born in nineteen hundred, and uh, when he was fourteen, he was um, taken into the Royal Australian Navy, the first class of the Australian Navy, which they've just written a, a book about called the Argonauts, and he's mentioned in that. And there was twenty-eight young boys that were taken in as fourteen-year-olds and went to college at the Royal Australian Navy College. Uh, and then he uh, was kicked out. He didn't like the disciplines, and he was just a, a bad student and a pain in the ass, which is massive. Classic what? Hereditary. All of this. <laughs> yeah. All of this. Seriously. Classic For three, three generations, there's been somebody kicked out of a school. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then he uh, went and joined the army and went to France and fought in France. And then in 1939, when Japan was starting to threaten Australia, 1939, 1940, uh, the government approached him and said, can you rejoin? We need all hands on deck because of the, the Japanese are coming. And by that stage, he was too old to fight. He was you know, 39, 40 years of age. So he joined the Air Force. Did your family tell you all those stories when you were young about that history? My dad used to tell me a lot, and I think that's kind of why, you know, in my mind I just kind of formed this idea that that was good. It was a good thing to serve your country. It was a good thing to uh, to serve. I think that was just it. My mum's grandfather was killed in France in the First World War as well. He served three years at the front lines. He went from Gallipoli to france and died just a couple of months before the end of the war he was killed just before the end of the war so he served pretty much the entire war and served at every single major engagement in france so you and you've been over to entertain the <coughs> troops have in you not Timor, yeah. yeah yeah so was that a i mean that would Loved have been it. a huge moment for you Loved yeah, it. 
totally got to shoot guns and stuff like that. And, <laughs> and I've got friends in, in, uh, who have served in special forces as well, and I've been lucky enough to go down to Holsworthy Army Base and to the special forces training grounds there and just shoot guns and just that's weekend warrior stuff. It's great fun. I feel like but, the thing that you would be really lacking in <clears throat> combat is stealth. No, I would have been a sniper. Really? Yeah. But you enter a room so loudly. Yeah. <laughs> like that Either is- that or a demolition expert. One of the two, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, you're right. Probably more demolition. Yeah. Or, or the cook. I, or I the like cook. cooking. I've, you need to be somewhere <laughs> where at all times you can go, it's Watsy. It's, it's, there he is. <laughs> there he is. There's never, there's never a point where the Taliban are going, who's that guy? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's Watsy. Uh, he's announced himself again. Watsy's here again. <laughs> but he's 25 kilometres away. We can hear him. <laughs> were you like that from a kid? Like, what were you? Were you a little <clears throat> shit as a kid or yeah I was I was very very uh, rambunctious as a child and I had a lot of energy and I was always very very loud and uh, uh, rambunctious I was always fighting for attention as a class, class clown from a very very young age and I enjoyed it I always, I've always liked people mm-hmm. I've always liked you know I, I genuinely like people so I like being around people I like entertaining people and uh, I love nothing more than making people happy so I wasn't a bad kid at primary school, when I got into high school, I started to get into trouble. Mm. But in the first couple of years, I was okay. And I, I think that I could have done. I could have gone one of two ways. I could have gone off and hung out with the nerds and you know the more academic kids because I actually quite liked them and I, I enjoyed some of their interests. You know, and you know, I just couldn't go the full Dungeons and Dragons mode. <laughs> Yeah, but oh, I kind of, do we have to dress up and do yeah, cosplay I again? I can't, I can't wear a cape. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but there was, you know, there was those kids that that I, I genuinely uh, was interested in, in hanging out with, who were probably better students and more scholastic than I was. But I was always attracted to trouble. I liked it. I, I don't know. I really don't know what it was. It must have been the adrenaline. But I liked doing dangerous things and stupid things. Was there a point where you or your folks thought? I think we've got an issue on our hands. Like, Heaps. I don't think you'll amount to anything. Heaps. Yeah. Heaps of times. Oh, honestly, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, the, probably the first time was when I was in primary school. There was, you know, attention drawn to the fact that uh, <laughs> I had my pen license revoked and had to go back to a pencil. Uh, but that wasn't – that's more funny than anything else. I still have appealing handwriting. Um but most genius do, so... Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, naturally, of course. <laughs> I'll watch it. So, it's something that we have to bear. That's very, you know, you can't um, be perfect. No, I think when, in, probably in high school, there's a few times where, you know, my mum was called up to the school for behavioural things, uh, you know, set fight or bin. It wasn't like a bully, mm. but I was a bit of a smartass, and sometimes I think I was probably a bit of a bully to people unknowingly, um, you know, just being a smartass, but I just liked it. I liked mucking around and, you know, unfortunately that was destructive at times and then I would get in trouble and there was one stage one of my discipline coordinator, Helen Ricks, probably defamation naming her, um, <laughs> said to me and I then I related to my mother, said, um, you're evil. She called me evil and it was the first time anybody had really kind of said, hang on a second, you're not just naughty, you're you're very poorly behaved. And so I rang my mum and I said, Mum, this little coordinator just called me evil. And my mum got in the car, drove to the school where she used to work, <laughs> came down and uh, went completely nanas. But it did draw attention to the fact that, you know, my behaviour was disruptive to the point where it was starting to become um, destructive. The interesting thing about getting into a sort of life of comedy and that kind of stuff is that there's almost uh, – that almost works in your favour – especially the kind of comedy that you were doing, you know, with with uh, oh, Rosso yeah. in the beginning, that sort of sense of I'm a rebel, I'll go and, you know, embarrass myself and other, you know, that was yeah. such a core part of why people found Cavalier. you so funny. Yeah. Yeah, because you would go and do those things that nobody else would have the balls to do. So did you feel, because actually when we started working together, um, what, four years ago, three or four years ago, whenever it was, um, we, you know, I was quite surprised I had only ever met you I had not met you yet but I'd only ever seen you in those movie premieres that we always had to go to and you would always be screaming in the room like you know being very loud and I thought oh me and this bloke are never gonna get along mm. and then when we sat down we had a we had a drink before we you know um got together and did the trial for our for our show and I was so surprised at actually how much of a grown-up you are mm. like you are so much more grown-up than you appeared to be in your comedy and that kind of stuff did you feel in some ways the fact that you get rewarded for being a kid 
arrests your development in some way because there's no real need to sort of grow up, even though you're grown up now. Mm. Did you ever feel in the early days of comedy, man, I'm getting paid to be a dick? Mm. 100%. Yeah. I still feel that way. <laughs> but also, too, I, you know, I like that, like I was saying before, I like that danger. And, yeah. that, you know, so seeing, you know, sitting in a, in a movie screening where everyone, the expectation is that everybody should be quiet, by being loud, by doing saying things that people just go how could you possibly say that mm. it should make me f- feel uncomfortable but it doesn't it makes me laugh i think that's funny to break that kind of social norm and and to to be a smart ass and other people just don't have the capacity to do that and i understand because it's stupid but i find it funny and i know that by doing that you can create humor and it is funny and, and sure here's the thing is it does annoy some people yeah i, I know that but, but i, I don't think, care I, I think the interesting thing about that when i when we started working together and the great thing about that is actually in some sort of awkward social situations so for example mm. in radio there's always that odd sort of sales content divide that's mm. just been going on since time you know began and it's very very weird but you were very good like what you need to over Overcome that sort of divide is somebody who will just bulldoze through. It's it. And you were very good at that, at really just sort of making an awkward si- situation more. kind of more, more awkward. awkward. <laughs> well, that's, that's exactly what I do, right? Yeah, I, I, yeah. That's, and that's a really deliberate thing that I do is whenever I'm in an awkward situation, like, and, and I can feel it, I can sense that if I'm awkward, other people are awkward, right? Because mm. you very rarely feel awkward on your own. Yeah. So if you're around other people and you feel awkward, most other people feel awkward. So I find that if you add more awkwardness to it deliberately it diffuses the awkwardness for everybody else by just acknowledging that there is an awkwardness there (laughs) so you know when you walk into a room and you know i do this when i walk into a room with other people and there's an expectation that you're going to meet them and hello and you know those social norms Mm. and but everybody knows that those social norms although they're social norms they are awkward so if i walk in and it's just pistols out bang 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 bang, bang, everyone just goes oh jesus before they've got a, a chance to even figure out what's going on all of a sudden that awkwardness is gone it's released and by some i think by some measure i probably absorb a lot of that and then diffuse it and, then, mm. and then it makes it easier for everyone else. Yeah. So everyone just goes, well, he's been a dickhead. <laughs> Clearly the bar has been raised or lowered, lowered. So, so to such a point now that none of us can do anything that's embarrassing because that guy. Yeah, you do a really good job I of that. I do an excellent job you of that. You do an excellent job of and that. I like it. It makes me feel good. Yeah. Like I said, it makes me feel good because it takes away the awkwardness. But also too, I like the fact that it's – it is helping other people. It's really interesting how, you know, it does take a certain type of person to really bulldoze through something like that. But you notice once that wall's knocked down, everyone's like, oh, okay, we can just be normal mm. now and it's it's more comfortable. And it's bravery too. I like it. I like that aspect of, you know, I know it's brave to do it because mm. sometimes I just go, oh, maybe I shouldn't. And then I just go, you know you want to. <laughs> be a dickhead. Go on. Be a dick. Say something stupid. You can't help yourself. Um, rewind back to before you got mm. into this game. Did mm. you ever have have a normal job yeah i was the last job i was doing i was working in bars and uh i kind of hit a, a crossroad and i'd worked in a little bit in retail and stuff like that and i did a little bit of builders laboring as well I was, when i was first started doing stand-up i was builders labor and uh, not a very good one mm-hmm. um but it was good because it taught me a bit of work and it taught me a, a few you know handy skills um, but I never wanted to do it. I, I, I just did it for money just to keep myself going. I, I never really had any interest in doing it. And I was also working uh, part-time as well in hospitality, working in pubs and uh, bars and stuff like that on weekends because that freed me up to do gigs, um, doing stand-up at night. So when I started doing stand-up, I was working in bars. So I got out of full-time uh, labouring and I moved into, into bar work. And I really liked it and I was actually strangely very good at it because I'm a hard worker and I, I worked really, really hard in bars and I couldn't understand why people didn't work hard. I just didn't know any other way. So I worked really, really hard to the point where I was probably about two years into stand-up and things were just starting to simmer a little bit and I think that was just around about the time I started working with Rosso maybe. Um, we were certainly mates by that stage. And um, the manager pulled me aside and said, look, we've identified you as a potential manager. You know, you work hard, you relate well with people, you set a really good standard. You kind of, your management material, which is something I had never heard in my life. Mm. Certainly not. You know, this is only a few years out of school. I was only 22, something. And um, I was really surprised by that. And he said, so you've got a choice. He said, if you want, we'll put you through a management program. And, you know, it's going to be pretty crappy for a couple of years, but eventually you'll end up running pubs. And I really liked it. I always liked the idea of running pubs anyway. And then he said to me at the same time, he said, but 
you you know you will do it at a sacrifice to the stand-up that you're doing and I said no oh, I don't know about that and he goes no he said it's just it's a full-time job you're working at nights you won't be able to do your gigs it's you've got to make a decision and I said oh, all right and he said it's good money and I thought about it and pragmatically I was thinking I should take this position because I would kill it I'd be good at this and then he said to me personally I don't think you should do it and I said why not and he said well I should be as your boss I should be telling you to take the position he said, but I've seen you do comedy. And he said, mate, you're a funny guy. Mm. He goes, it'll kill you to doing this. Mm. He said, but I've got to offer you the job. Isn't that interesting? Do you find, because <coughs> as I get older, I'm starting to realise that actually the person that you are is really already ingrained in you really early. I don't know. Do you have a lot of people from your past? Obviously, that guy saw it in you. Do you have a lot of people from like your schooling years that mm. go, mate, we already always knew mm. you'd end up doing this? Mm. There's no surprise to most people who knew me growing up that I went and became a comedian. Mm. It wasn't a really big leap it's not like oh wow Merrick's doing comedy now it was more like yeah of course he's doing comedy because he was shit at everything else (laughs) so but I did have I had a teacher uh, when I was in year 12 when I I, because I was expelled from my high school I repeated year 11 then my second year of year 11 I was expelled and uh, so you never finished school I did I went went to a new school went to Dymo and uh, which is Diamond uh, Valley Secondary College and uh, it was a more arts based school teachers were on first name completely different structures mm. and I got there and thrived I went from you know failing to almost straight A's yeah, right. in year 12 I, I pretty much aced every single subject I was doing so I was doing psychology English fine art painting uh, and media and the only one I didn't do well in was media <laughs> Irony, <laughs> irony. But, but I get straight A's and R. Yeah, but you're a very smart man. If you're in the right, if you're in circumstances you're fo- where focused. you uh, want to be somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I didn't want to do biology yeah, at school. I didn't yeah. want to do mathematics, and so I didn't thrive. Yeah. But I had a teacher there, a guy called David Bradkey, who I just owe so much to. He was a tremendous guy. He was my art teacher, and I was in trouble and a lot. I was in trouble with the law at that stage as well. I'd done some pretty stupid shit, and I was had a court appearance, and. Um, he wrote me a reference and helped me through that stage. But more than anything, one day I was being a dickhead in class and he just pulled me aside really aggressively and he said, mate, this is just bullshit. He said, you're a really funny guy. You've got a great energy. Why do you act like a And he used those terms. And it was a teacher swearing at me and I was like, wow. And he said, you've got so much more to offer. You've just got to channel it properly. And it really put into sharp focus. And he helped me move away, transition from those kind of uh, the energies, channeling the, the energies into negative things into more creative things. He um, helped me go and do yoga, which I still do today. I haven't Did done you start it that young? Yeah. What, what was it? I mean, don't, you know, don't talk about anything you don't want to talk about it, but why, why do you think you were channeling things that way? I don't know why. I just think I was misguided, you know, and I was, I was channeling it into stupid efforts and I was hanging around with some, like some of my mates were great and they really stand out people now, but um, some of my mates that I was hanging out with were terrible influences and, and criminals and uh, bad people. Uh, and sometimes I liked the danger and the elements of the criminality, but um, yeah, what I'm talking about, you know, I wasn't doing heinous crimes. Petty pretty, crimes or yeah, whatever. Pretty, I mean, stuff you get a criminal bond for as opposed to, I don't have a, you don't have a record. I, I don't have a record. Mm. Um, but I don't know why. I just kind of, you just, I just fell into that stream, you know, and I moved with the momentum in the wrong direction. <clears throat> and then I had somebody help me correct it and, and focus it more creatively. So I was 19 when I finished high school and uh, I kind of had a year, like a sabbatical, I suppose, of just not studying and I was doing some bills labouring and uh, basically just being a dickhead and wasting time drinking beer with my mates. And then... Um, then I was 20 and my brother said to me, he said, you've got to, you've got to do stand-up, mate. You've, you, what are you doing? You're wasting your life. So, okay, that's, that's, a, that's a great observation and obviously a natural progression for you. But what w- how do you go about writing that first gag? Like what was that first sort of step into comedy or was it just you wrote a whole bunch of things that <clears throat> worked and it was like, oh, my God, I was meant to do this? When I was at, when I was at high school, when I was still at Eltham High, um, so I was about 16, we didn't have a drama wing there. We didn't have drama per se. Otherwise, I probably would have been interested in it to a degree. I, I don't think I'm necessarily... I'm not a drama student, as you know. Um, but uh, they didn't. But they, for some reason, they we were putting on like this kind of end-of-year production thing where you could write something and, and you could act it. And 
And so I wrote this thing, which was really just a bit of a ripoff of Faulty Towers, but it's set in a restaurant. And I wrote it, and it was the first kind of bit of something funny that I'd written. And it was pretty awful, I'm sure. But it, it was funny because I saw a couple of the teachers laugh, and I knew that that was genuine. I thought, hang on a second, they're adults. This, yeah. I'm not... I'm not doing something stupid like, you know, throwing bull ants on other students here, which is very funny. It's very funny. Like if there was a television show called Throwing Bull Ants on Other Children, it would rate pretty well. It would well. rate well, yeah. Um, I'd host that. Yeah, naturally. Um, I don't think anyone I'd else also, would touch it with I'd, a temple pole. I'd also be a contestant yeah, and yeah. probably a victim. Mm-hmm. Um, but I saw teachers laughing and I went, oh, hang on, there's something, something to this. And I went, hang on a second, whatever that is, whatever that feeling is, I like that. And it was performing in the sound, but I loved the writing. And then I think one of the kind of epochs for me, a turning point, was when I was finishing year 12, I was in a really good relationship with a girl uh, called Heather, who was uh, an American girl. And we were kind of living together as, you know, as young people. And she was a very good influence on my mind. You know, uh, took me away from um, bad influences and uh, just gave me a little bit of nurturing and, and was just a good person. And at the same time, you know, that I was in a good place and more receptive to positive influences. And my dad, and I still have this, it's such an important book to me. Uh, my dad gave me um, a copy of Clark and Dawes, the interviews. Oh, yes, yeah. And it was politics. I had no idea about politics. I was 19, no interest in it. I'd seen these guys on a current affair. I think yeah. they're doing Friday uh, nights. Yeah. You know, they well, do like yeah, five-minute interstitial the, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I read this book of interviews and I just loved it. I loved the way it was written. I loved the cadence and I loved the dialogue, the back and forth, the way that you could create a dynamic and set it up and bang, set it up and bang, set it up and bang. It was so dynamic and I loved that. I just went, that, this is what I like and mm. that changed me, which was weird. It was a weird thing for a 19-year-old to see political satire like that and what is not an obscure two-hander, these are very professional guys who are still to this day working and still to this day, I love their work. Mm. But I saw that and that really profoundly affected me and moved me towards comedy. And ever since, my fav- one of my favourite things to do is just to write dialogue like that. Really snappy, simple dialogue. I love writing one as a kind of pleasure. Mm. More than even doing stand-up. Sometimes I really enjoy doing stand-up, but to sit down at a keyboard and to write good dialogue for radio uh, for or for anything I love it I love that sensation of just nailing those lines coming back editing it tightening it up and just having that really snappy dialogue so I think that suited me and I think that's why it suited me to be in a duo isn't that interesting because you think Clark and Dawes in particular that's the kind of comedy that as a 19-year-old, if you're a 19... Most 19-year-olds would watch that and go, what What are these two boring blokes talking about something mm. I don't get? It's mm. very over-the-top-of-your-head kid comedy, you know? 100%. Um, but that was when I was reading it mm, that I absorbed it. Yeah, but it's so interesting that that's the sort of the angle that you took. So what, what was that first gig like? What did you do? It was obviously uh, not a two-hander. No, no. no. Um, I started stand-up when I was 20, Um because I was at a party. I don't know if this is of any interest to you, Rach, but I was at a party and I, I, I was late to a party. I'd been working at the bottle shop or something like that and uh, I was late to a party and I rolled up and my brother was there and my brother's like, dude, where have you been? I said, oh, mate, I had to stay back. I had to do an extra hour or something at the bottle. And he just goes, mate, everyone's waiting for you. And I said, waiting for what? I don't know. I don't know. You know what do you, what's waiting for you? He goes, mate, everyone's, everyone's waiting for you. And I said, what the? I don't know. I couldn't understand what he's talking about. Anyway, so I grabbed a beer and then, uh, so I was talking to my brother and then all of a sudden, you know, my, a couple of my mates came over and then I started telling a story about the train trip I'd taken to get to this party in Greensboro. And, you know, as everything, I'd, I'd embellished it and I was talking about a guy that I'd sent on the train and blah, blah, blah. And I was just telling the story. And I looked around and there was a big group of people now and at least half the party was now kind of standing in front of me as I was telling this story to what I thought was my brother and, and a couple of mates. And I tell the story and everyone was laughing. And then I went to go and get another beer. And my brother just said to me, he goes, that's what I'm talking about. That's, that's it, mate. Mm. That's what people are waiting for. He said, you don't realize it, do you? And I said, I don't know. And I really genuinely didn't. He goes, you're a stand-up comedian, mate. Mm. That's what you do. People wait for you to come to a party so that you can be funny and tell jokes. And he said, so you have to go and do stand-up now. So my brother booked, forced me into booking my first gig and like literally walked me into the doors uh, at the Star and Garter Hotel in South Melbourne in 
94. Wow. So that was, if it wasn't for my brother, I don't know whether or not I would have got up and done stand-up in that fashion. It might have happened later on. It's hard to say. But but it's like with anything, right? When you are, you know, experts, the wrong word in this in this term, but if you are really good at something, mm. you are often the last person to realise. Yeah, yeah. And everybody else around can see what you have to That's give. It. But you go, hang on a second, I've just come and I'm telling you about the train journey. This like, is it. This, this is isn't it. a bit. This is a story and this is what I do and it comes very naturally to you. But then everybody else says, oh, God, I wish I could tell a story like that or I wish I could make people laugh. And when you are a naturally funny person, you don't think about it. No. For me, it was a very kind of social norm because that's what I used to see with my dad. My dad was a very kind of convivial guy and a great raconteur. And I remember as a child, we'd go to parties and my dad would be holding court and telling stories and you know, it was only much later in life after he died that I realised my dad was a frustrated comedian. Yeah. So, and he was incredibly supportive of my career. Oh, well, that's good because usually they're, they're sort not. of like, damn you for doing my, what I wanted. Exactly. My dad could not have been happier wow. than the day I said to him, Dad, I'm going to do stand-up comedy. I'm going to become a comedian. He's like, fantastic. Do this. So, for you solo-wise, did you get a bit of traction or was it sort of not until you met Rosso that things sort of really picked up? No, strangely, it was actually things were actually going pretty well for me. I was quite young. I was twenty. By the time I was twenty-two, I was doing some MC work and some headlining work. So I was moving in the right circles. I was moved definitely in the right direction, and I was being paid. I was earning money, not a lot, because there's you know there's not a lot of money in stand-up, but I was earning some money. Good money at that time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I was earning you know a couple hundred bucks a week. You know, on a good week, mm. <laughs> on a bad week, ten. <laughs> um, but you know, it was. Um, yeah, things were kind of kind of moving for me. And I think what happened is when Ross and I started talking about doing comedy together and then we started working together, it just hyper-accelerated that. Where did you meet? I met Ross before I did stand-up, I think. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh, you knew him before yeah. you even started, like when yeah, you were 19 sure. or something? I might have just started doing stand-up. I, was, it was, I think, I think I was, the first time I ever saw Ross perform was before I'd done stand-up and then by the time I met him, I was doing stand-up. Right. So I think the first time I saw him perform, I saw, I saw Rosso perform in his uh, comedy band Black Rose at the club in in Collingwood uh, on Smith Street when I was a, a young bloke. So I would have been, must have been just turned 20. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was with my brother and, and I was at the bar trying to talk to this girl who had zero interest in my human face. <laughs> you know how it works, right? You've seen this. and uh, you are You've been that person. <laughs> I've done it. Um <laughs> And uh, my brother ran up, to, ran up to me and he said, mate, you've got to come and see this band downstairs. And I said, no, I don't want to go and see the band. And he goes, mate, you've got to see this band. He goes, you will love them. And I said, mate, no, I'm not. And I was never a live music person, so I said, no, I'm all right, mate. I'm just going to just keep smashing my head against this wall, thanks. And, um, <laughs> and he said, one of the guys is wearing moon boots, you know, like 80s moon boots. Yeah. And I said, oh, I've got to see this. <laughs> and I went down and I saw Rosso's band and I was like, these guys get it. This is funny. Yeah. This is very different. Completely, it was all a piss take. You couldn't tell whether or not they were a bunch of people who had mental illness, <laughs> yep. for real, yep. or if they were just very clever. So it's like a very early spine. This is spinal. It was tap. like spinal tap, mm. but it was like a really Aussie shit pov bogan version <laughs> of spinal tap <laughs> yeah. with no budget. And just, you know, that kind of massive self-belief that they were the biggest band in the world. And I loved it. I thought it was really, really funny. So I was a fan of Rosso's band. And then I um, met him at the Esplanade Hotel after I'd started doing stand-up. Uh, I met him at the SB Hotel backstage one day and I said to him, I'm a big fan of Black Rose. And he was really quite surprised because I don't think he had any fans. Mm-hmm. And um, then we just became mates. Rosso came to my 21st because it was free peers yeah and uh <laughs> so mates and then when i was about 23 i think 23 20, 23 maybe 24 before we started working together and when you started working together did it begin as a writing thing did you start to sort of imp- like do stuff improv what was it i think it was born from the pair of us wanting to do something more than just stand up you know there's a really puritanical form of stand up which is just the man and the mic but there was just – I just found it very limiting. And also, too, I love people and there was yeah. no engagement with people. So I kind, I kind of felt like, yeah, I like this, but this is not the thing that I want to be doing for 20 or 30 years. I don't want to be that, that guy who – and I, I, I totally get that some people love it, totally. But it's not something that I could ever do full-time. Just It would drive me nuts because mm. it becomes recital. 
So I, I was talking to Rosso about it, and he was very much the kind of same. I was like, you can do so much more with somebody else. And we're talking about things that we do, things that we thought were funny. And it was like little sketch ideas and character ideas, and we could film this, and wouldn't it be funny if we wrote this and did that? And it was just like there was no brief. There was no, We just said, let's not take this to stand-up rooms. Let's not do stand-up rooms at all because there's an expectation there that's that's not what we want to do. Let's get our own venue. And this is where Rosso was really very, very clever because he had um, learnt this through his experiences playing in Black Rose, is you just book a venue, sell tickets, get people to come and just perform. And that's what we did. So we used to do what we used to call pub rock comedy um, or rock and roll comedy because it was. We used to go to a pub, put up posters, exactly. We market ourselves the same way a rock band would and would have a following. We had a little following like a rock band, but we would put on shows each week that were completely new material every week and a lot of it was shit <laughs> a lot of it was terrible was it written or was it just we're going to get on stage and just see what no, or would you have kind no, of brainstormed some ideas we would or? work all week yeah we would work all week every single day we would work on putting a show together and did you immediately have that sort of simpatico where you were like throwing ideas around and it was 100%. like working yeah 100 the best and russell and I, I always say this about russell and i is that we are very, very different people, with very different personalities. We have very different interests in things, but our sense of humour is the same. So, you know, if, if you were to do a blind test of if you had 10 funny things in a room and I was asked to put them in order of funniness and then separately, Ross, I was asked to put them in order of funniness, that would probably match up. Mm. And that's essential when you're in that kind of – because that's the whole – Electricity that comes from working with somebody else. When they mm. say something, you go, "I love that," and mm. then you say something, and then I love that. You know, you work with some people when they say something, and you're like, mm. "I am not into that at no. all." You know, so it's a real magic when yeah. you meet another person. Yeah. Where and that's where you know you can really create some awesome stuff. What do you reckon in the time that you guys, you know, did those pub rock comedy shows, or even even later on in Curie, is there one sort of thing that you did or idea that you had that stands out as just the most ridiculous thing oh unbelievable you, <laughs> you got away unbelievable with or... shit. and i love it just thinking about some of the stuff we do and i often i do i often think about those early days before we were known before we worked on triple j or anything like that those early days we did some comedy which was just i, I would love to see it now because i think it would either be brilliant or utterly shit <laughs> but you know there's one um there was one thing, Rosso, for some reason, had um, a fiberglass rabbit head. It was like part of a costume or something, <laughs> but it was made out of fiberglass and it was enormous and it wasn't a mask. It wasn't meant to be worn, but we thought, wouldn't it be funny if we made a character and his name was Fiberglass Rabbit Head Boy <laughs> and he would just wear it and he, would, he was a mute, but he would wear it. And then I would play this other character whose name was, I think his name was Crazy Dereek. It was so bad. <laughs> and we used to film these little videos of these, these two friends and we'd just jump cut things and the rabbit would just appear on the rooftop of a house or something like that. And I'll, my character was walking to go, what are you doing, fiberglass rabbit head boy? <laughs> And then that would be it. And, like, it was so weird. It could either be absolutely like gold, said, yeah, or, or you'd watch it's it more like it's total <laughs> shit. But it, people used to laugh at it because it was just so odd and it was so different to what people were seeing in comedy at the time. You know, there was really very much that, you know, coming out of the 80s into the 90s, there was still that kind of legacy of uh, man in the mic, kind of old-school puritanical stand-up. And this was just nowhere near that. But it wasn't absurdist theatre either. It was... This is the weirdest shit you've ever seen. Mm. People just go, all right. How did you make the jump to the Jays? Where did that come? Uh, so, Russell and I, we did, we did a fringe show. The first show we ever did was called Pissheads from Outer Space. <laughs> that, had, that had Five Glass Rabbit Head Boy in it. Okay. One of my favourite shows. And we used to just wear a lot of wigs and dress up and just do stupid shit. Um, but we did four or five shows during the Melbourne Fringe of that show. Then we did a, a return season of different shows called The Imposters. Uh, which was just us just doing more of the same shit but different. And then we did a comedy festival show uh, for the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, the American Rosso 5000. Remember, you know, like you have the Ad Blaster 2000. Yeah. Everything had a 1,000 yeah. on it. So yeah. it was like the Mixmaster 10,000. Yeah. It was like we just said, we're the American Rosso 5000. <laughs> so that's what it was. So we did American Rosso 5000 and um, – and we did it during the comedy festival and immediately it had a, a big following. We, we sold every single seat during the festival. 
we it was sold out every single every single show we did. We didn't do a lot of shows, and right? that was your first Melbourne Comedy Festival mm. show. Gosh. Well, we had a bit of momentum off the back of the last yeah. year. So when we went to the festival, we already had a following and people were used to seeing new work from us. And what we did is we just refined it and said, okay, let's just do the same show each week, but just make it better each time. And that's kind of what we did. And anyway, word kind of got around and we were doing these shows and some people from Art of Services, Steve Weisard's Scouts, came down and had a look at us and we got commissioned off the back of doing that, that show. That's when we first did some work for the Comedy Channel. And we went on Triple J to do um, an interview with Francis Leach, terrific guy. Francis got us on and we showed him some of the elements that we're doing on a live show for the festival. And he was, really, he was laughing. He thought it was funny and a whole lot of other people funny, thought it was funny. And the producer thought it was funny and said, oh, maybe you guys should speak to the guys in Drive. So we went on drive, um, and at that stage it was with Judith Lucy and Helen Razor. We did it once or twice, and they kind of liked it, and then we became regulars, and we just did, popped in each Thursday for an hour and did an hour with them and just, just did radio. When you moved to doing the actual show, when you mm. got offered a job to do a full-time gig, mm. were you both sort of like, well, how, how did this that happen? That happened quick. <laughs> That's what we're doing. You know how many gigs we, you know how many shows we did, Rach, before we, we did? Oh, this is just embarrassing. We did two mid-dawns which I panelled, so that can show you the quality of it. Yeah, <laughs> You <laughs> can't panel now. No, nah, nah. that's, like that's like saying, oh, I did this gig where I flew an A380 Airbus, <laughs> but you can't. <laughs> Same. Uh, we did two or three mid-dawns, then we did two months, so eight, eight weeks of filling in for Roy and HG on Sundays, just doing like a two-hour show, Yeah, which we had a producer for, and they kind of helped us walk through that. We did eight weeks of that, and then they offered us drive. So oh, in total, we've done 10 shows. Radio, there is so much, as you and I have had countless conversations about, there is so much craft to it. There is mm. so much that you can learn about how to do better radio. But at the bottom of all of that is, can you tell a yarn? Are mm. you engaging? Can you do three hours worth of two hours, three hours worth of content, five days a week? Mm. And those kind of skills, a lot of that is just in you. Yep. So, you know, while it seems like a short amount of time, at the same time, you guys obviously could put together a lot of stuff. And, and that is the bottom of radio. The rest can be sort of mm. learned. And I think, you know, you and I both had a very similar approach to radio particularly now like the the attention to detail that you have to the actual craft and the writing and getting you know and really understanding how radio works now that's why you survive the test of time you know yes you might have started with 10 shows and begun but there's plenty of people that have jumped on and then jumped off because they don't put oh, yeah. the time and the effort lots, in. Of, lots of people have done you know followed pretty much the same course that Ross and I did in one way or another but they just burnt out yeah or they they just couldn't produce that amount of material consistently and that's the thing it's, it's it's a content battle you just got to keep making content i i some ways rachel i agree with you know what you're saying about survival in radio being down to understanding the craft and understanding that it is it is actually a craft but you've got to work mm. you've got to actually go to work and make it sound like you've done no work on your show mm. that's the trick that's the trick and andy do that as well mm. they put a lot of work into making it sound like not so much work has gone into the show and that's the magic because that's what the listener wants to hear but you know, more so nowadays, I think in the last five to maybe seven or eight years, actually, the thing that I've noticed that I think is certainly one of the survival uh, techniques that I've used in this industry is the understanding of the commercial applications of what I do. Oh, yeah. And I think a lot of people fail really miserably at that because there's that sense of, man, I'm an artist. Yeah. You know, man, I don't, I'm, you know, I'm yeah. not going to buy into all this stuff. And the thing is that you need to have a healthy relationship with the commercial aspects. Otherwise, yep. you know, it's paying your bills. 100%. And you need to understand that sales and advertising and all of that mm. kind of stuff does not make you mm. the great unwashed. No, because here's the thing. What I do is called commercial radio. Mm. Otherwise, it would just be called radio. <laughs> I don't do radio. I do commercial radio. Yeah. And the, the failure for um, people to adapt to the requirements of those commercial needs can be a downfall for them. That's your budget to go and have fun. Mm -hmm. That's the way I see it. They're paying for your playground. Mm -hmm. If they're not paying for your playground, you don't have one. So anybody who builds you a playground is a good person. Absolutely. So thanks for building my playground, 
Now I can go and play in my playground and be a dickhead. Yeah, and I think when we were doing our show, you know, n- nothing terribly interesting, you know, generally about Chuck Super Wipes. But I tell you, when Chuck Super Wipes tell you that they will help you plastic out a, mm. a town hall so that you can have a food fight and with turn into a 30 listeners, <laughs> exactly, and then come and clean it all yeah. up, you know, then all of a sudden you're yeah. like, the client takes on an entirely different meaning and Good different people. relationship. Great people. Yeah, I think there's some people, you know, Hamish and Andy, I think, uh, understand that too, that, you know, you clients can help bring your ideas to life because mm. they'll support you and they'll fund you essentially but this massive uh, resistance from a lot of people who work in radio to understand that i think a lot of people they tend to take the approach of oh i'm talent yeah, yeah. why would i go meet clients exactly and you go, mate you have got that so wrong, wrong because without the clients and without the advertising no you don't have a show no playground and if you can't get advertisers, especially in the environment that we're in these days, mm-hmm. you know, when advertising, radio advertising isn't like it was 15 years ago when they didn't have any more spots to fill because everybody wanted to spend. There are so many different ways to spend money now sure. uh, than traditional media. And the idea that you're not wise to that, and, and there's definitely still a lot of people knocking about who think they're too good to go and meet clients and mm. you think you are doing yourself a huge disservice. They should be a part of your show. Well, what, you know, if you're selling, talking about selling yourself to a client, right? You are. Don't think you're not. And it's, it's not a bad thing. Mm. Everyone else has to do that. Mm. You know, if you're a plumber, you're selling yourself to a client. Yeah. So just because you work in commercial radio, doesn't it's no different. Whatever, I have no shame in that at all. But I think the difference is that you used to sell your profile, right? And that still happens. You sell your profile. Mm. Now, what you know, certainly what I try to do is sell my profile to a degree, but what I try to really sell is I sell your them ideas. my ideas. Yeah. Yep. So they have a product, they want to do that, they want to integrate it in radio and I say, this is the best way to do it and because I've got 17 years in the business, I probably have a fair handle on that that will probably work. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not feeling around in the dark trying to find a solution. I probably know through experience and here's what I reckon would be really, really fun. And then when, when you're engaged with it, they're engaged with you because you're engaged with it. That's the trick to radio now. Now, now that's obviously the way that you you work, but do you miss any of that craziness of the early days mm. when mm. it was just a we are just making this up as we go? I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. But also too, I'd be disappointed if I was still doing that at forty three. Yeah, yep. you know, I hate to say this. People go, oh, you, maybe you're not as funny as you used to be. You go, no, I'm not as cavalier as I used to be. Mm-hmm. But I also have children now. You know, I'm married. I've got two kids. I'm 43 years of age. I'm still a massive man child. <laughs> but, you know, for me to go to a press conference now and, you know, humiliate other people for fun like I used to, which was funny, when you're 25, mm-hmm. when you're 43, you look a bit tragic. Yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> so, you know, that's what it is. It's not, it's my comedy, I think, has adapted well to, to the future and to where I've gone. I don't feel like I'm trying to dig up an old me or an old sense of me i'll always be me it's just a matured me it's a different type of me the same way wine matures yeah right? you are like I'm a fine wine starting to move into grunge territory you sure are one of the interesting things i always find about people in this business is we all have a touch of the imposter syndrome no matter how long we've been mm. working or how successful we are i don't have i know what imposter syndrome mm. is i don't have it i've got a pretty healthy ego and pretty pretty strong belief <laughs> in myself um am I satisfied with where I am? Yeah, I I do have a great job. Mm. And I have to be reminded how good um, I have done and how good I am doing. Because I I don't, I always look above. I always look, I'm always looking forward. I'm always looking above. And I have always struggled to be in the here and now. Mm -hmm. And I've got to try as a life thing, I've got to try and enjoy this more and stop worrying about the future and trying to do more in the future. But there's lots of things I want to do. You know, is this the the be-all and end-all for me? No, I reckon I will probably have another incarnation at some stage. Mm -hmm. I think there will be, you know, the same way that I've transitioned from uh, working from Triple J, I matured and went to Nova and I reincarnated myself again and went and became a host at uh, Triple M and did, of course did a year at Today FM but then back to Triple M where I'm the host of the show. Mm. So that is a big step for me and I, I really don't take that lightly and I don't know how long I'll do it for because of the industry so I just enjoy it while I can. I do love the autonomy and the responsibility of running my own show. Mm-hmm. I love being able to just run things without a council, without a quorum, just bang, get it done. I enjoy that. 
and that's that's an achievement that I, I kind of am currently living in, and I'm, a, I'm as I said, I'm grateful for that. Is this the pinnacle of where I thought I would be? No, not at all. Mm. I've always thought I could do a lot more. There would have been things that I would like to have done, and there's acting, there's films, there's all sorts of stuff that I would really like to have done and that I probably could have done when I was younger that I can't do now mm-hmm. um, because I've got a family, I've got kids at school, things have changed. So I can't kind of go and cut that path, that, that fork in the road that I chose many, many years ago. So I, don't, I can't live with those regrets. So I don't regret those. Do I think that this will, that I will just stay in the stream of things? Not necessarily, no. But would that's I, what makes you, that's what makes a success, you know? You sort of just keep, you have to keep evolving. Yeah, yeah. I think there'll be another evolution of me at some stage. It might be a, a different form in radio. It could very, very reasonably be outside of radio. I don't know what it is. There's lots of things I want to do. There's heaps of things I want to do. There's lots of things that I work on quietly in my own time that have got nothing to do with radio. And do I want to walk away from radio? No, not at the moment. But would I for the right thing? Yeah. Yeah. 100%. What do you think is the best and the worst thing about this industry? The best thing is the ability to talk to Australians. For me, anyway. That's that's always the thing. It's not about being... It's not about talking at people. It's not about having a voice or being able to voice an opinion even. I love people. I want to hear their stories and I want to share their stories and I love empathy and I like sympathy and I like that sense of communication and that sense of um, dialogue with them. That's my favourite thing in radio is the, the ability to get to know people. On television, you can't get to know people. Yeah. On um, In print, in writing, in film, nothing can you get to feel like you know someone or share something with someone there's not that sharing that i really really like well in no other you know not in movies not in tv do you ever have the phone number of your favorite star no you know in radio if you like somebody that you listen to you can call the number that they Mm. say and be talking to them in five minutes connectivity and in that moment there's there's yes there's a lot of planning that goes into to shows when you're on radio but a lot of that that you know you do in the moment is improv you're trusting you you're prepared enough to to sort of improv and have a conversation in the moment but the real high wire and the real stuff that comes when you're talking to a caller like that's you've got no idea what they're going to say what their story Mm -hmm. is and more often than not surprise you it's the best thing and more that. often than not, you know, when you're doing phone topics in your radio show, they they bring you stories that you could never have access to. They're the best. They're the you can't absolute write that shit. best. And when you're doing, you know, the classics or the your producer or line up your, your calls and you've got that one, two, three calls and you know the third call is the best of the yep. lot and you've had a great two calls yep. and you think this is, what, this is going to be this dynamite. Is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. It's like being at a fireworks night. You've seen the first few crackers and then you just go, but hang on, what about that gigantic yeah. thing there? And then you go, pow, and you go, wow, call a three. Yeah, they did it. That happens. Yeah, especially when they're the ones that give you the out and you're like, thanks, mate, we didn't have to do it. See, here's the thing too is, you know, I like, I, I'm, I've always been this way with, and you know this, race from working with me, like I don't care who takes the out. Oh, no. I don't care. It's no about way. It's about creating a great piece of work mm-hmm. and that that conversation whether it be four or five minutes of of airtime if the caller gets the best joke out and great. the jokes against me i don't care right exactly and some I, people can't deal with that yeah can i've worked with plenty of people that could not deal with them not being the one that gets the funny line at yeah, the yeah. end and i don't I think care listeners can hear that and that sort of struggle of tension between yep. you trying to steal the limelight is never going to be a show that people no. are going to want to attach to. Team win. Yeah, the it's always, always a team win. What about the worst thing about the business? I think the worst thing about the business is the fact that it doesn't give itself the credit and the credence that it deserves. Radio is an incredibly powerful medium. And yet we still look at ourselves as the poor cousin to television. When the television industry has taken enormous blows... Radio is still very strong. I don't think we give ourselves credit enough for that. And I think that is part of it. And I think that that filters down and manifests itself in different ways. And one of the ways I really, really don't like is that we don't look to our own industry to help our own industry. Mm -hmm. We don't form up our own walls. So we don't have proper mentoring programs. Mm, Yeah. And that really annoys me. Yeah, ditto. That drove me nuts. We need proper mentoring programs. We need to look within the industry to promote talent, not outside of the industry. Yep. Because the people inside the industry have the skills, they have the abilities, they have the desire, 
and they have the passion for that industry. That's why they're in the industry. Mm -hmm. So why do we look as far away as we can to find people who have to be convinced with large sums of money Mm -hmm. to do something that they are impartial about at best? Yeah. And unskillful. And so then what happens, mm. these people do these jobs, and then as an in- radio industry, we go, well, that didn't work, cut them free, sacked, bang, and it makes our industry look bad yeah. and unstable, when what we should be doing is building our own stars. One of the best things that uh, Channel 9 used to do, and still do, continue to do, but they were certainly a powerhouse of this belief in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, was build your own stars. Tell Australia these people are stars. Ray Martin's a star, Australia. Damn right he is. Yeah. Raise a star, Channel 9. And that's that's the thing. I've had countless conversations and conversations with program directors who have said verbatim to me, you are the best person for this job, but you will not get the job because nobody knows who you are. That's right. Kyle and Jackie O weren't Kyle and Jackie O till you put a billboard on George that's right. Street. That's exactly right. They were stars because you told everybody yes, they were stars. exactly how that works. So the idea that you wouldn't take people that can do radio and can do get, give you a good show yep. because what... People who want to be there. Want to be there because what suffers at the end of the day if, if shows chop and change is radio. Yeah, and it's, I think it's a really... It's a blight on the industry that we don't have a collaborative mentoring program and that we don't have, even within the company that I work for, a formalised mentoring program where people like myself with 17 years' experience in the job aren't at least asked whether or not they could at any stage help coach, develop or find Birds of a feather flock together. And I'm certainly not going to try and give myself too much credit because Ross, I was very, very good at this as well. Identifying talent. You see you see things in people and it can be small things, but you just, you see it. Now, a program director might not necessarily see that. Mm-hmm. It might pass them because they don't necessarily do what you do. Some of them might have and some people have got a good eye. Not all program directors are blind to it. But talent are the best people to identify other talent. Yeah. So why aren't we being used to identify talent? But I don't know whether, because that's why I've started teaching, you know, outside. And I think, you know, when we were working on our show, creating that kind of environment where everyone could thrive, I think was a very mm. important thing to you, me and Jules. But there is that real sense of, sense of being set adrift when you are in the industry. You sort of have to make it on your own. Mm. And you think in any other industry, there are mentorship programs, there's training, there's, mm. you know, and it's literally just sort of seems to be a real kind of sink or swim mentality but sometimes i think even then when people are picking the talent to develop you know i'm not saying they don't they don't do mentoring programs but what they do is they might do development programs and i've said this is not a reflection of of triple m or of sca i think this is a, a, a broader thing right across the industry they will develop certain people in certain areas but sometimes i think i hate to say it, sometimes they're just the wrong people yeah because they're not ident- they've been identified by management not by talent. Why aren't talent being asked? I've never been asked once in my radio career, Mez, is there anybody on your radar? Mm. Oh, what do you mean? You mean like Tommy Williams, who Rosso and I discovered when we were on Triple J? Miff Warhurst was on our radio show when we were on Triple J. Peter Hellier was on our show on Triple J. Of course, then he was doing stuff with Rove, but his first radio stuff was with us. I'm not saying that we built his career or any of their careers. They've all gone on. But they were, Tommy Williams particularly was the first time he was ever on air anywhere, anywhere was on our show. Mm. You know, now he's a full-time television host. But I don't... You, you see something in people. They can just give you a glimmer and you can pick it up and run with it. But, you know, the interesting thing about that is that I think that that, that is the exception to the rule. I have worked with plenty of people who would not be interested in finding other talent, who would not be interested in mentoring because they're threatened. Mm. They don't want to help somebody else up through the ranks and I think that's a real but problem I do. as well. I I want, ditto. I want to find somebody who's going to take my job. Absolutely. absolutely. I don't want somebody to say to me arrogantly, I want your job. No. What I want somebody to say is, I want to do your job, Eric. Mm. I want to I want. I don't want them to be me because mm. trying to be me and the, the biggest mistake anybody who's getting into radio can make is trying to be Hamish and Andy. Yeah. If you try to be Hamish and Andy, you will fail. Yeah. There's about three of you them will, out there at yeah, the moment. That's right. And, you, <laughs> and is, yeah. sadly, you will stay in the yeah. regionals. It's, it's Hamish and Andy light. Be you and try to be as big as Hamish and mm, Andy. Mm. So the thing, the great thing that Rosso and I always had. We're not influenced by anybody but ourselves. And you've only the the person you should be in competition with is you. 
You know, if you do you the best that you possibly can, then arguably you can get to National Drive. It is absolutely doable. But if you get a job above me, it's because you have the qualities that I didn't possess. It's not because it's a slight on me. It's just because – and there is no rhyme or reason to this business. You know, there's a million reasons why you can get sacked or your show doesn't work or whatever. And if Mm. you take every single blow personally, you'd be crawled crawled up in the fetal position rocking back and forth. Which I've been before. We we all have. But you're right, there's so many circumstances are out of control but I think from you know from a talent perspective if you're worried about um, developing people because of a fear of that they're going to take your job then seriously you got issues you've got problems yeah then you, you will lose your job but for other reasons don't worry about that all right final five we're at the end now great chat by the way I've been very boring Rachel no I've I'm not glad been very funny. No, Are you glad I'm... I've been boring because <laughs> no. it makes you look good far out I, I like being funny but as you know there's there's two sides to me exactly and this is a side that I like very much this and is we the don't get boring to... side <laughs> we don't get to explore oh. it this is more of an investigative podcast than it is necessarily a laugh a minute, mm. you know. Don't, but this is—I should also say this is. People sometimes think this, this is the real meat. This is not the real meat. All of this stuff is the real yeah, meat. Yeah, exactly. This is just a little slice. This is just the other part of it. Yeah. yeah. So, all right, I've got a final. I'm five not question. boring. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> See, I'm. I can be really funny you can when be. I'm. I just forgot. <laughs> I just forgot to be funny for a little while. All right, final five questions. Go. Your biggest regret. I really find it hard to pinpoint a regret. I love that answer. Oh, I can. I can. Right. I regret. The poor behaviour that I displayed in parts of my radio career in the middle of what what is now the middle of my career. When I was at Nova and Rosso and I were number one and everything was flying and you know, it was always parties and, and drinks and it was crazy and it was a great time and there was a lot of money and there was a lot of attention and there was a lot of fame and I was a douchebag. But I, I don't regret that because I think it's helped me get to this point now where I know that that was bad. I'm not living like that now. So uh, that's a life lesson for me. But yeah, I regret. I regret specifically some of the times that I hurt people, you know, or upset people that I worked with, because that's not me. You know that mm-hmm. I don't. I, and I, for some reason, I fell into that, and I became like that for a period, for a short period of time, but long enough that I regret it. I think sometimes for some people, you need to see that and see what impact it has to change. Yeah. Because yeah. now you're the total. I mean, you're the total opposite of that. I yeah. I mean, you're still douchebag in some ways, but just not. <laughs> different flavor of douche. Different, yeah, different douchey flavor. Uh, your dream gig, or is there something that has you haven't kicked off the bucket list yet? I'm no, guessing maybe acting or something. Yeah, yeah. I would. L- I'd love nothing more to than to write and not star necessarily, but write and appear in a sitcom. That would be and very I've good for you. Partially written three. I bet you have. Mm. Uh, I've written one. Somebody I showed it to really, really liked it. Another person was ambivalent, and then the third person was me. It was like, oh, I really liked it when I wrote it, and then I went, no, I'm bored of that already. You know who I feel like needs to get involved because I feel like he was the pivotal person in every major shift in your life is your brother. Really? He, he's been there at those at those points to push you in a direction that you need to go. Mm. Maybe he needs to step in if you're listening. <laughs> Beachy, push me. Seriously, Beach, push him. Um, and if oh, if you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? What? Oh, Jesus. I mean, Rach, far out. Oh, <laughs> I couldn't get a job anywhere. <laughs> You'd be managing oh, pubs. Oh, Christ. No, I wouldn't get a chance. I wouldn't get a chance. Really, honestly, what would I be doing? Is there um, anything outside of showbiz that, or apart from joining the army? You'd be in the army for too, sure. Too old now. Oh, too old, yeah. Too old and not tough enough. Um, I really like the idea of farming. Truly? Yeah. I really like the idea of like aquaculture or, or like a, I know you've heard this before, but like having a yabby farm or something yep. like that or, or growing something specific. I'd, I'm really at the moment very, very interested in pre-colonised agriculture. <laughs> Of course you are. Jesus Christ. Of course. I can't believe that just came out of my mouth. I'm really, really I'm really interested in in grains and seeds and tubers and, and food sources that Aboriginals harvested and farmed intelligently before colonization destroyed the land that we live on. Welcome to the Meriquats I know. Oh man. <laughs> Oh, no. You may know the guy it- that winds down the window and yells something at strangers. Are you cockface? <laughs> you should get into more pre-colonial agriculture. Learn something about how... Yes. This is the Merrick Watson. Guardians of our land. 
<laughs> okay, right. so you you right. <laughs> maybe maybe that, but honestly, maybe something in the wine industry. You're very knowledgeable in that in that no, area. I'm not so knowledgeable about agriculture. <laughs> if I was to, if I was to become a farmer, I would be broke in six months. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it'd be a fun six months. And what's your advice for people wanting to get into the business? Oh, it's really simple. Just work hard and be yourself. That'll do. There's no. Sh- I always say this to young people. There's no shortcut to the long road, mm-hmm. and it is a long road. With every craft, there's an apprenticeship you must serve, and mm-hmm. I think that's true in radio as well, which is why I go back to the point I made before, Rach. Let's look inside the industry to find the people to work in radio because they've already done their apprenticeships. They know the craft of radio, and they can be taught a lot quicker than trying to get somebody who's not interested to try and do it because they've got a profile, work hard and understand that it's going to require hard work, but always be yourself. Do not try to be anybody else unless that person is me. Try to be me. <laughs> it's been a joy having you on the podcast. Do we feel- kiss now? It's so weird. I don't know. It's been the- you Can know- I say this has been the worst date I've ever had? <laughs> You're a dick. Thanks for listening to You've Got to Start Somewhere. Thanks. To subscribe to the podcast, check out other episodes, and keep up to date, head to you've got to start somewhere.com. Hello there, keen listener. Look at you, making it all the way to the very end, even after all the musical bits when everyone else has gone home. Here I am, again, reminding you gently to pop into iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you subscribe to the show to leave a review if you like what you heard. And if you would like to create your own podcast but need a little assistance, you can head to podschool.com.au where I have an online podcasting course that can help you. I also would like to note that I did realise in this episode I only asked four questions in the final five. Welcome to the issue of labelling a segment according to the number of questions that you're going to ask. You kind of have to get that number out every week and I've missed it twice in a row. I will try and rectify that for next week, I promise. Uh, Speaking of next week, I have Sam Mack, the Channel 7 weather presenter for Sunrise and lover of all things cat coming onto the show to talk about, among other things, his desire to get on television from a very, very young age and the lengths he went to to do it. I used to go to the soccer at Highmarsh Stadium in Adelaide with mm-hmm. my dad and once a week they would have what they call um, the match of the round or the match of the day and that meant that the live um, coverage would be happening in Adelaide and I knew exactly where to stand behind Les Murray to make sure that I was on camera and I'd have my mum at home recording it on a VHS and then when I got home that later from the game that night... I would watch, and do you know the pause still advance feature? So you, you can actually go frame by frame through video. And like, I would be ecstatic if I was on there. I hope you'll join me next week for the next episode of You've Got to Start Somewhere. See you then. 